you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Last week we began a short series called Don't Waste Your Summer. We did this because of the way in which the summer season can fool us into being lax when it comes to our spiritual lives. Given the increased time for, for just for relaxing, for vacations, for sports and other activities of leisure, we can be duped into thinking that we can also relax when it comes to our spiritual lives. This is especially true not just in the summer, but specifically in the topic that we want to look at this morning, this morning namely living a life of purity before God. I say before God because in an ultimate sense, it doesn't matter how you live before one another. Now, that doesn't mean that it's of no consequence. Don't misunderstand. We're actually going to talk about that a lot in two weeks about how the church impacts our lives for holiness and for God. But in an ultimate sense, it doesn't matter what I think about you. It doesn't matter what you think about me. What matters is what does God think of us? Are we pure? Are we holy? Are we seeking blamelessness in His eyes? And so that's what we want to think about this morning. We want to focus on the fact that we can and we should be pursuing purity by the power of God. And in order to understand this, to see it, to grasp hold of this message, we want to look to Paul's letter to the Romans in the first 14 verses of chapter 6. So I invite you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 1. Paul's, of course, writing from chapter 1, verse 1, and he's been building an argument, and he comes to the point now where he says, what shall we say then? In other words, in light of all that we have said from Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, what do we say about this? What should we do? Where should we be going? How should we think? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. May God bless the reading of his word. In these verses, we have hope 
for living a life of purity before God and before one another. In these verses, Paul tells us why and how the very power of God is available to Christians so that they may pursue lives of purity, which is God's will for their life. In these verses, we first need to see then the basis for purity. We need to understand the basis for purity. Notice the question that Paul begins with. He says in verse 1, or he asks rather, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, we don't really know why he asked this question. It could be a rhetorical question based on a possible objection that he anticipates. Or it could actually be something that he was accused of teaching by his fellow Jews, teaching that you're not under the law anymore, but you are under grace, as if he was somehow advocating lawless behavior, doing whatever you want. But Paul has just spent three chapters showing God doesn't save because of what we do. He's argued hard that the righteousness of God's saving work has not come to us because we were righteous. We were not good and so received good, quite the opposite. He has hammered again and again into the heads of his readers that the law only produced an awareness of sin. It condemned us and yet had no power to free us from sin, no power to save us from condemnation. Therefore, he says, it is by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, that we as sinners have come to God. And yet, when people hear that message of grace and the twisted logic of their sinful hearts, they might say something like, okay, so if where sin abounds, God's grace superabounds, then the more I sin, the more grace I will receive. Therefore, it doesn't matter how I live my life. Even if I'm sinful, God's grace will just overflow. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. Now, I find it quite odd that several people, several prominent people throughout the history of the church have actually believed and advocated that teaching when Paul so clearly says you shouldn't believe that teaching. Some of you are familiar with the name Rasputin, uh, who was quite the character in uh, the, the, the court of Tsar Nicholas in Russia. He believed this, that, that the more he lived a life of sinful licentiousness, the more he would experience the grace of God. I dare say that man is in hell now because he's not understood the gospel of grace. And so Paul's response is, is, no, don't live sinful lives to experience more grace. By no means. The exact opposite is how we should live. We should pursue lives of purity. Why? Two reasons. Number one, because of our union with Christ, we have been re- Christians have been released from their sin. Christians have been released from their sin. He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No. Why? He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? This is why the gospel doesn't lead to a life of sin. Through the gospel, we have died to sin. Now, how has that happened? How have we died to sin? He explains in the next verse. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, what does he mean here? Does he mean somehow that our baptism has a saving effect? Well, it might sound like that, but the problem is that would then contradict, again, everything that he said in the book up to this point. Paul tends to be a pretty consistent thinker. 
You read all of his letters and they pretty much all say the same thing addressing different topics. We would say, no, Paul is not saying that this work that you might do, this baptism, affects your salvation. Instead, he is looking at baptism, at a Christian's experience of baptism, as a symbol that points to their salvation. Remember, in Paul's mind, there's no such thing as a Christian who has not been baptized. But though baptism itself doesn't save, baptism is an evidence of salvation. It shows our obedience to Christ who commanded us to be saved. And it is that, that marker line that is that, that initiatory rite that separates us from the world and brings us into the church a visible display of our union with Christ. So Paul says those that have been baptized in water are those that have put their faith in Jesus. And therefore, they have been spiritually baptized into Jesus. Specifically, he says here, first, that they were baptized into his death. Look at the words that he uses here. Verse 4, he says, We were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death. And then in verse 6, he says that what caused this death and burial was our being crucified with Christ crucified, dead, buried. That's how Paul describes the union we have in Christ. Why? Because he is using the most clear, the most severe language to say, when you became a Christian, there was was a definitive break in who you were before you became a Christian. You were dead, and now you have spiritually, and now you have died to that old life by being united to Christ own death. Why does he emphasize this point? Because in that old life, sin was our master. Sin was our king. Sin reigned over us. And now he says, you've died to that old life. Sin is no longer your master. Before we came to Christ, we were enslaved to sin. Paul has just been explaining this in Romans 5. Speaking of Adam, the first man, Paul says, sin came into the world through that one man, through Adam. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. All of us are born under the reign of sin because we are born as a descendant, a child of Adam. But now, Paul says in verse 6, we know that our old self, that is our old life, apart from God's grace, apart from Christ, apart from salvation, that old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. So here is the amazing reality of salvation in Christ. We are free from sin. We've been liberated from it. That means purity is possible. Purity is possible. So sin used to be like that nasty Marine drill sergeant. No offense to the Marines. But that guy, that that kind of stereotypical guy that you see in all of the movies and television shows, that drill sergeant who, who literally owned every young soldier who came through his boot camp. But after the war, when you see him in the street and you're both civilians, you owe him nothing now. There is no rank on his shoulder or on yours. He cannot order you around. You are not accountable to him. And it's the same with sin. You're free from it. You're liberated. It has no control over your life anymore unless you let it. Unless you let it. So today, 
tomorrow, this week, when that besetting sin that you struggle with constantly, that seems to have a grip around your neck and will not let you go, that you cannot seem to get rid of, this afternoon, this evening, this week, when it, when it stares you in the face again and begins to call to you and you feel helpless to say no, remember, you can say no if you are a Christian because you've been set free from sin. It does not need to have tyrannical rule over your life. You can say, no, thank you, and pursue a life of pureness, purity. You can be free because you are free. Sin no longer reigns over you. In Christ, we have been released from our sin, but secondly, we've also been raised with our Savior. We've also been raised with our Savior. Death inevitably leads to life. That was Christ's experience. He died and then he rose back to life. Therefore, Christians who are united to him have that as their experience as well. They died to their old life, but they also experience new life in Christ. Look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Why? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then beginning at verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul is saying that for the Christian, life in Christ is resurrection life. It is newness of life. It is not how our lives used to be. We are still in this world, but spiritually, we've been raised from the dead. We've been united with Christ in heaven at the right hand of God. Because we've been united in his death, we are also united in his resurrection. So just think of beyond Romans for a second. Think about what Jesus describes in John chapter 3, about the new birth that comes to those whose life is hidden in Christ, who believe and trust in him. Or think about Ephesians 2 and 1 Thessalonians 5, one that we heard prayed earlier where we were dead and now we've been made alive and raised with Christ. Think about the very end of the Bible in Revelation 12. 20, where John talks about two resurrections. I know some think that, has, that he has in mind there are two physical resurrections, two risings from the dead of physical bodies at two different times, but I don't think that fits with the rest of the New Testament. I don't think that's what that's teaching there. On the final day, yes, God's people will come up out of the ground in resurrection bodies just like Jesus. But the New Testament teaches over and over and over again that when you place your faith in Christ, you have a present experience of a spiritual resurrection. The language is used over and over and over again. You were made alive. You were raised. That is resurrection language. So though we have something to look forward to in the future, the full, final, eternal resurrection, without any threat of death at all, so even now, spiritually, we have the foretaste of that. We have died to sins, but now we are walking in newness of life through Christ. This is the basis for the pursuit of purity by God's people. This is why it is possible to strive after and to succeed in living a life of purity. But at the same time, if anything else is your starting point, 
If anything other than this gospel reality is what you're basing your hope for godliness on, then you will fail. You will fail. Because you will try to stare in the face of sin and say, I'm stronger than you. And you're not. You're not stronger than sin on your own. You cannot say, today will be different because I'm going to give it everything I've got. Bad news. Everything you've got isn't enough. You'll fail because you don't have what it takes to conquer sin on your own. It is an unyielding taskmaster because sin is not something outside of you. Sin is something that wells up within you. It flows from your own desires, your own sinful heart. You cannot conquer yourself. What you need, therefore, is to experience death and resurrection. You need to experience Christ and his saving work. You need to experience a death to sin and a resurrection to new life. That is the kind of power that breaks the chains of sin that we might have freedom from it. And again, that only happens through faith in Christ. It only comes, the power for purity is only made ours through the gospel. This freedom, this life, is only made available to those who trust Christ to save them from the power and the penalty of sin. So that's our starting point. That's the basis, that's the foundation upon which we launch out into this pursuit of a life of purity. So we not only keep in mind that basis, but now, now we also engage in the battle for purity. Because of that basis for purity, we can now fight the battle for purity purity. Here's here's the reality. Just because the power of sin has been broken, just because it's no longer a master, that doesn't mean it's easy to live a life of holiness. Why? Because we still live in a sinful world. Because though the power of sin has been broken, the presence of sin is not yet done away with. You still, even as a Christian, have a sinful heart. And so that's why we said sin doesn't have power over us unless we let it, unless we give it power. So the question is, how do we stop giving it power? How do we stop letting it reign over our lives that we might be pure before God? Well, Paul gives us, very, gives us three very practical suggestions in these verses. First, he says that you should consider your salvation you should consider your salvation. Look at verse 11. In light of what God has done, verses 1 through 10, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word consider is important. It's a verb that speaks to our mind, right? We don't use our toes to consider. We don't use our heart to consider. We use our mind, our thinking, our thoughts to consider something. Why is that important? It's important because every time temptation to sin comes to you, it's making a promise. It's making an argument for why you should embrace it, why you should sin. And you have to consider that argument. You have to reason that out. Think about in the garden, the very first temptation. What does Satan do? He gets Adam and Eve to doubt God's word and to believe his promise that rebellion, that disobedience, that sin will be good for them. More than just good, it will be great for them. That what God is offering is puny. It is small. He is stingy with his grace towards them. But but if you take this sinful option, oh, 
you'll love it. You will be like God. That, that was the lie. That was the promise of sin, and they gave into it. And the rest, as they say, is redemption, the history of redemption. And so Paul says when temptation, when sin begins to make that appeal, when it begins to offer you promises of blessing, of goodness, of relief from pressure and suffering, stop and consider what God has done. Think about the fact that you are dead to sin and alive to God. That's not something you have to do. It's already a reality. You've been freed from sin. Now you've been called to a new life of purity. Stop and consider the facts. Remember the truth that you believe that brought you into a family. In other words, the battle for purity starts with faith. It starts with considering, remembering, contemplating what God has already done and believing it, believing it to be true, believing that sin is no longer your master and that you have been called to something better. And that if you embrace that calling, if you pursue purity, then yeah, you might endure pain in this life, you might endure suffering, you might experience loss, but the eternal joy of intimate fellowship with God far outweighs any temporary pleasure sin's going to give you. The battle against sin and temptation begins with faith. Faith, it's about looking outside ourselves to acquire the power that God has for us to achieve purity. The battle starts with faith, but it doesn't stop with faith. It's not enough just to believe Faith is not, in that way, faith is not at odds with effort when it comes to pursuing holy lives. From faith in the gospel flow strategies that we can implement, that we can take hold of, that we can strive in that will allow us to battle against sin for purity. So this is the second thing that Paul says. We not only consider our salvation, but we need to work at cutting off sin. We cut off sin. He says this in verses 12 and 13. He says, having considered who we are in Christ, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Now, what's interesting to me is that that word instruments there occurs a handful of times elsewhere in the New Testament. And in every instance elsewhere, the word is translated as weapons. As weapons. In the battle against sin, your body is a weapon. I want you to think about that for a minute. Every part of your body, every instrument, every member of your physical form can either be used to glorify God or satisfy your sinful desires. What you look at with your eye, what you say with your mouth, what you do with your body, even those modest parts that we keep covered, all of them are weapons in the fight for purity. And what purity? And what does he say? Take control of them. Take control of what you do with your body. Take control of how you live your life. Don't let sin reign. Don't let sin move you into doing sinful, disobedient, impure things with your body as tools for unrighteousness. Now, what does that look like in day-to-day life? How do, we, how do we fulfill that command? First, you have to be aware of your sin. You have to be aware of your sin. 
You have to know where you're most likely to be tempted. When you forget who you are in Christ and you consider the promise of sin better than the promise of gospel. When is that taking place? Where are your points of vulnerability? Where are your weak spots? How do you sin most often? What specific members, parts of your body do you most often give over to be an instrument of unrighteousness? Now, let's just be honest. We are very tempted. We are very tempted to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt here. We are very tempted to be generous with ourselves and to think very highly of ourselves. But the reality is all of us have work that needs to be done. All of us probably have those areas where we know we fail over and over and over again. So be aware of your sin. Be brutally honest with your failings and the battle for purity so that you can expose the darkness of sin to the light of the gospel. If, if you want to take this to the next level, find someone and confess your sin to them. We, we, we love to think we can do it by ourselves. We love to think that, 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 we, can, that we can bring about change. But, but the way to truly expose sin is to find someone and say, I am struggling with this. Please pray for me. The moment those, no matter how embarrassing you think it's going to be, the moment those words come out of your lips, I guarantee you, you will immediately feel a measure of freedom. It's, it's, out, in the, it's out in the light now. So somebody else knows about it. I've actually spoken about this sin in a way that, that uncovers it from all my attempts at hiding it. Be aware of your sin, but then having done that, secondly, attack your sin. Attack your sin. Take practical, sometimes even sacrificial steps to cut off temptation. If, if you know this is how I usually sin, this is who I'm with when it happens, this is what I'm thinking and doing, then don't do those things, right? If you know it's always at, at, at 12 o'clock at night when my spouse has gone to bed that I flip on the computer and look at things that I shouldn't be looking at, don't have your computer on after your spouse goes to bed. Don't do it. Just make that your commitment, right? If you know that, that having sweets in your house is going to cause you to overindulge, don't have sweets in your house. Make it a commitment. I'm not buying that at the store. I feel free in Christ to eat those things, so I'll do it when I'm over at a friend's house. I'll do it when I'm at a restaurant as a special treat. But don't keep it in the house if that's your besetting sin. And just go down the list. What are you most tempted at? If it's to be disconnected in this, in this social media age from your phone, make a commitment to turn it off for certain hours of the day. Just make that commitment. If this is the source of your temptation, get rid of it. Well, what did Paul say to the Corinthians? I, I am free for all things, but all things are not helpful for me. I am free in all things, but I will not be enslaved to anything. If something is enslaving you, though in and of itself it may not be sinful, get rid of it. If a man was a, a drunk for 20 years, you would not tell him, sure, go into the bar, meet your friends, just have a Coke. No, you shouldn't do that. That is the source of your temptation. If you have a group of friends that you always sin with, abandon those friends. And don't, don't use this pietistic excuse, well, I want to be a gospel influence. You're not! 
They're looking at the discrepancy of your life when you say, I trust Jesus, and then you're down in the pit of sin with them, and they think nothing of Christ. Abandon them. Get rid of your friends. Destroy the relationship. Burn the bridges because they are not worth your life in hell. And what Paul will say later is this. If you don't fight this fight of faith, it means one thing and one thing only. In the, in the ultimate sense, you never had faith. If, you don't, if you're not, if you're not in, in, in the least bit guilty and concerned and wanting to strive, even if you fail, if you get up in the morning thinking, I want to be holy for God, if you're not, that's not your life, that's not your experience, then you're probably not a Christian. That's the reality of it. Because nobody gets saved and loses salvation. There's only those who make false professions that turn out to be false in the end. Lies, self-deceptions about what they thought they had. So don't go there. Don't, don't, don't make that the way you cross the finish line, not into glory, but into destruction. Attack your sin. Take practical, sacrificial steps to cut off the temptation. Perhaps, as we've said, your, your issue has been this, this external thing, but what if it's an internal thing? What if your issue is emotional? What if it's anger? What, what if it's a, a melancholy spirit that, that tends towards depression? Then what do you do? Because it's up here, right? You, you, you can't pull your brain out and throw it away. That, that, that's not a good option. I'm not recommending that, okay? Well, you can do this with all these other things too, but for you, the attack is on the emotional level. Remember, your emotions are driven by thoughts. You say, well, I, I'm not sure that's true. It is true. How do you know? The Bible says so. And it bears it out over and over and over again. You may not be aware of it, but even you're sitting there watching a movie and you just think, oh, I'm just crying. I don't know why I'm crying. Because the movie, though in pictures and music and characterization, has nevertheless made an argument for you about what is going on in this, in this person's life, how they are responding, and you have thought through that and you have responded, right? So you go into a kid's movie like Up, and you think it's gonna be fun, it's gonna be exciting, and the first 10 minutes makes you a blubbering idiot. And your kids are saying, what's the matter, daddy? You're going, oh, nothing, it's okay. Well, what, what happened? Because it showed these two kids that enjoyed being together and as they got older they fell in love and, and, and everything looked great but then they found out they couldn't have kids. And they began to grow old together and then one day the, the wife started slowing down and she tripped and fallen and it turned out she was sick and the next thing you know he's sitting there in the hospital room and no wife is in the bed. Immediately they've made this argument that life is broken. That there are joyous expectations and very often they are not fulfilled. And let me tell you, when you're not expecting that, it, it hits you like a punch in the gut because you can immediately identify, right? We're, we're all people, especially if someone is married and has kids, that would just be crushing. I'm not intellectually parsing that and thinking through it, but it's made an argument and I've embraced it and I've had an emotional response. So if your sin is emotionally rooted, if you are, if you are lashing out in anger, if you are putting your, your, your head in the pillow because you feel like you can't face life, you're so depressed, what do you do? You attack the sinful emotional response based on the thoughts you're having. You find scripture that speaks to you truth about reality. Like Psalm 42.5, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Why? Because then I shall praise him again, the rock of my salvation. You put your hope in God, there is hope for you not to be depressed. That's what, that's what the psalmist is saying. 
If you, if you struggle with anger, then remember James 1. Know this, my beloved brethren. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you want to be righteous, you better not be an angry person because it's not going to happen. Now, what do you do? It's not enough just to find those things. You write them out. You put them on notes and cards. You put them on with sticky tape and you plaster your house with those things so that even if you are so frustrated, you're so depressed, you're just so bound of shape that you don't have the, the, the energy to pick this book up and open it up and read because you think it's not going to help, then everywhere you walk in your house, you're being confronted with God's truth saying, there's hope, there's power for change. I am here and I will do it. You make it the lock screen on your phone or the wallpaper in your computer. Whatever, you put it on your dashboard in your car. Whatever you do, you get God's word in front of you to cut off the temptation in your life. That's how you do battle against sin. This is how you fight against it, remembering that God has redeemed you. He has released you from its enslaving power. He is giving you new life in Christ, so change, purity is possible. You consider God's salvation, you cut off sin, and then third, you commit to service. You commit to service. Paul says in verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you were not under law but under grace. Paul says, instead of using your body for sin, use it for righteousness. Use it to serve God in righteous ways. Now understand, this is not here, here, this is not the fruit of a pure heart. This is what you do to achieve a pure heart. We're still on the means, not the result. So what Paul is saying is it's not just enough to make a diagnostic evaluation of your life and sin and try to start cutting things out to take practical steps to eliminate temptation, he says, proactively start serving people. Start, start making decisions about how you use your body to accomplish righteous things. Don't just stop sinning. Start doing good. Be active in righteousness. And remember, this doesn't have to be some big amazing thing. He's not talking about uh, you know, signing up for the IMB and, and being gone to Africa in two weeks. That, that's, that might be what he wants you to do. But that's not what he necessarily has in mind here. It might be something far more mundane. Perhaps even something that others would feel like they wouldn't stoop to do. Some of you were with us when we did our study in Nehemiah. You've read Nehemiah. When he comes back to Jerusalem when the people of God have been exiled. There's lots of reasons why I love that book, but, but there one of my heroes shows up in just a few verses. His name is Malchijah. Now I know, all of you know who Malchijah is, but I want to remind you also of the story, okay? Malchijah is the ruler of a district in Jerusalem. He's a man of power, he's a man of wealth, he's a man of influence. 
And when Nehemiah comes back with supplies and with spiritual encouragement so that they can take this city that's been razed to the ground by invaders and its people have been carried off, they can begin pursuing life as God's people once again. They can rebuild their city, they can rebuild their temple, and they can get back. They can be revived and rebuilt as the people of God. And one of the things they begin doing is rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem and its gates. Every gate has a purpose. Some of them is just to protect and block off traffic to major cities. Some of it is for the importation of goods. But there's one gate, all of them have names, like the fish gate. Malchijah begins work rebuilding something called the dung gate. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure when I read that, there weren't people lined up for that job. What, what are you doing in this rebuilding effort? Isn't it great to have Nehemiah here? I am donating money for the building of weapons for the defense against our enemies. Oh, that is amazing. That is amazing. What are you doing? Well, I am providing the resources for my wife and the women of this city to provide food for all the workers. Oh, that is, that's amazing. That's great. What are you doing? Well, I am providing the materials that the temple of God might be rebuilt, the sacrifices might be going. Oh, my goodness. That is amazing. What are you doing? I am rebuilding the dung gate. Thought you smelled. <laughs> Doesn't seem like a very prestigious job. It is, in case you couldn't tell, the gate where the garbage was taken out of the city. And some of us are often tempted to think, unless I am doing something great, I am doing something obviously important, then it's below my dignity. And here is Malchijah, this leader among his people. And he says, this needs to be done. No one else has stepped up to the plate. I will do this because I want to serve God's people. Sometimes serving as an instrument of righteousness means being out front, taking the lead and having your name smoking among prominent people. But other times it simply means working at the dung gate. He was in charge of the rebuilding. Think about the guy that was in charge of the disposal. Don't try and make a name for yourself. That defeats the whole purpose. Just work and serve and let God work out whether or not you will be prominent. One of the great antidotes for sin is service to God. Every minute you spend harboring bitterness, spreading gossip, or looking at porn is a minute you've wasted when you could have been serving Him. You see, sin is always self-serving. So the way to combat an attitude of self-service is to serve others. Fight sin, Paul says. Engage the battle for purity by serving God. And so very helpfully, I think Heath Lambert suggests some simple questions we could ask ourselves about this week as we pursue this. Think about your family, whoever they are. Might be extended family far away. Might be someone sitting right next to you. Whoever it is, how can you serve the people in your family this week? Think of two, think of maybe three things that you can do. It will take time. You'll have to go out of your way, but you know you will bring joy and delight and make their life easier. Think about that. Write them down and do it. Think about this church. Well, what could you do this very week to practically serve the people at this church? Workday's coming up. That might be a good way to be thinking about that. What could I do to bring joy and encouragement 
to the people here, my fellow members. Think about how you can serve them. You come up with other ways as well. The point is we are submitting ourselves not to sin for unrighteousness. We are submitting ourselves, and by ourselves, I mean not just our mind and our soul, but our physical bodies to God in service to him for the sake of righteousness. We must think of ourselves not as something special, not as someone who is going to be a star on the rise, but we think of ourselves as a tool in the toolbox, asking ourselves, what can I do to be useful for God today, this week? How can I serve him in righteousness? Thinking that way, living that way, will help us in the pursuit of purity. As we finish, I want you to imagine a very talented young woman. She's just graduated from medical school. She's gotten married. She's had a child. She's been now employed by a very famous teaching hospital. It is a coveted position. And as far as she can see, there is only good in front of her. She has no worries, no concerns. Life is great. But then the accident happens. A drunk driver crosses the median on the highway and takes out her car. She survives, but not without serious injury. And on the road to recovery, she is, she is prescribed strong pain meds. She knows what they are. She knows the dangers of abusing them. She faces disillusionment because of the disruption of her plans for life. And so not just to numb the physical pain, but the emotional pain, she begins to take more than she needs and becomes addicted. Even when she makes her recovery and goes back to work, she wants more medication. So she begins to steal from the hospital where she works to get the drug that she craves. But that becomes not to be enough. It's not powerful enough anymore. So she talks to patients and comes into contact with people who deal in illegal drugs as well. Her marriage her relationship with her children all begins to be strained because of her addiction. Her job performance is falling behind. She's getting bad reviews. People know something is not right with her. And suddenly in the midst of her downward spiral, all of it comes to light. She gets caught in what she's doing. She's arrested. She faces numerous charges. But by God's mercy, she finds a judge who takes pity on her. He's willing to not allow the charges to go forward, to only give her probation. But she still faces problems. The medical board might pull her license. She might never work again, not to mention the recovery that is needed. Physically and relationally as she goes through rehab, he wants her to have family to support her. He's done all that he can, but now it's up to her to get clean and sober and start rebuilding her life. The judge has shown incredible kindness, but there's a limit to what he can do. He cannot change her heart. He cannot free her from her addiction. He cannot give her strength to start making better decisions. He cannot bring healing to her marriage. All he can do is spare her the punishment for the crimes that she has committed. And in this way, that judge is nothing like God. That judge is nothing like God. God is a judge. He is a judge, and in Christ, he has done away with the penalty for our sins. He, he's not just wiped them away. Justice has been meted out. Christ has taken the penalty that we deserve. But more than that, he's not just a judge. He is the giver of life, physical and spiritual. In saving us, he sends his spirit to dwell in us, to cause us to be reborn, uniting us to Christ. And in doing so, he not only gives us new life, but he frees us from the power of sin, giving us the power to change. 
He's not left us to ourselves to get cleaned up and to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. He has called us to live changed, holy lives of purity, and he's given us the power to do that. He's given us the strength needed to pursue that. So that this morning, if you're here and and you've never, you've never turned to Christ for forgiveness, today is the day. Find freedom, not just from the penalty, but from the power of sin. And if you are here as a longtime Christian, then be reminded Whether it's the summer or the fall or the winter or the spring, it is never a time to grow lax in our pursuit of purity. Paul says, those who died in sin cannot continue to live in it. Therefore, let us pursue a life of purity by the power that God himself has supplied. Father, we are so thankful for this message of hope this morning, this message that that we're not left to ourselves that we're, it's not just about what we do. God, it's, it's based upon what you do through us. What you've already done in Christ and freeing us from sin and giving us new life through your spirit and now how we deploy those resources in the fight for purity. God, be kind to us. Be gracious to us. Be merciful to us. Be loving towards us and encourage our hearts towards this fight towards this pursuit of a life of purity before you. God, we know this will not only bring us the most joy, but you the most glory as our lives of purity not only encourage and build up this church, but bear witness to your saving work throughout the world. So God, be at work in our lives. Convict us, encourage us, strengthen us for the pursuit of purity. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.